0: Hey, I'm MJ Taller, also known as a black wine guy. I went from being a totally obsessed wine newbie to becoming the world's first ever African-American fine and rare wine auctioneer in less than three years. In this show, I'll be talking to the mavericks, the philosophers, the players, and the deep thinkers who inhabit the world of wine. They'll share their experiences on how they made it, but more importantly, how they failed and got back up again. So grab a glass and let's get to it. This is the Black Wine Guy Experience. Hey, everybody, what's up? It's your boy, MJ. Welcome to the Black Wine Guy Experience. My guests today are the power couple, husband and wife duo behind Argo Wines, Beth and Justin Harmon. Um, Beth. And Justin actually met uh, during a harvest. We'll get into that. Um, but Justin actually is uh, the winemaker. And he left behind a life in Chicago to pursue his dream of starting a wine, bread, wine brand. And then uh, Beth, who grew up in East Texas, um, like most American girls, particularly girls from Texas, wanted to go out West and find her fame. Um, so she ended up out in Sonoma, ended up meeting Justin. And we're really going to get into her story, but... You know, I will say this. I've done a number of uh, IG Lives with, I did an IG Live with Justin back in the full-on pandemic. And then we recently did an IG Live with Beth, who has now come on full-time at Argo, putting her talents to work uh, to grow the family business. Uh, We did one recently on their uh, 2020 Syrah release. And uh, we're going to talk about their 2021 uh, Bastard Tongue, Pinot Noir release but before we even Get there we are going to uncover their Story so everybody please welcome Justin and Beth Harmon How are you? Hi Doing good thank you MJ Um super Excited to be here with you um because I've been on your list and 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 have some wines thank you for So but I have right here I'm going to start with a little Bit of the uh 2018 Simpatico, Simpatico Ranch Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, before we get into some Pinot Noir so um, cheers to that so hey guys thank you so much for being here and doing this with me um, this is actually a little bit of a first for me I I have re- resisted. Uh, doing remote interviews, but you guys are so fantastic. We've done so many lives. I love your wines, and I love what you've been doing recently with your social media. Really uh, stepping out. I think that's probably Justin. I mean, I sorry, probably probably Beth, <laughs> that. probably Beth making Justin reverse that. It's probably Beth making Justin get in front of the camera. And by that laugh, I could tell that must be. I must be close.
1: Maybe. <laughs> um,
0: and um, no, I you know I really love to get people's story and support, you know, uh, I really love supporting people who are in it for the craft. And, 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 and when I say that there are people who work for bigger wineries, but they're still in it for a craft. I, I don't want people to think that, um, I, um, uh, am, uh, poo pooing or shitting on anyone because, um, you know, I think I'm talking a lot, but I think in today's world that, Uh, you know I get into these natural wine discussions there's these discussions I think people actually also underestimate how hard it is to make millions of cases of wine that all taste the same right like like the science that goes into that so there is a there's a certain skill set but that's not what we're about here so guys um, I like to start at the beginning so we're gonna do ladies first so Beth where are you from?
1: Uh, So I grew up in a small town in East Texas called Lufkin. So for the Texans that are watching this, listening to this, um, about an hour and a half north of Houston. Uh, As you mentioned earlier, I had bigger, brighter dreams to move out west. I couldn't wait to get out to California. I grew up visiting California a lot because my grandma actually lived in Southern California. My mom grew up in Southern California. And I really didn't know much about Northern California until uh, a visit in 2008 to Santa Rosa, California, which I had never heard of and absolutely fell in love with wine country and ended up there as a young lass in my early 20s. And uh, the rest is history. I guess it's been 14 years that I've been living here now. So crazy.
0: That is crazy. But, you know, we're, we're going like to I said we're going to back up. So <laughs> from Texas, um, what what was uh. Like, do you have any brothers and sisters? Do you have any siblings? How big is your family? Or are you the I'm child? from a big family,
1: yeah. So I have five siblings, um, ranging in age. So my oldest brother, when he when I was born, he was six, 16. So we're 16 years apart. Um, so it's definitely a wide range. I'm number five of the six. So i kind of on the baby end. Uh, my siblings are kind of all over the place now, including my older brother, who's in Finland. Finland. Yes. <laughs> He's quite, got quite the travel bug, always has. He spent a lot of time traveling the world and ended up falling in love with a girl who's originally from Finland. They got married in 2011 and uh, they just had their first baby, actually, um, which pretty cool. We're, we're actually dedicating a wine that's coming out of the 2021 vintage to my new nephew, Leo. Um, so, yeah, my siblings are all over the place. Um, just grew up in a very small town culture, which was not necessarily for me. Uh, Most of my friends, you know, kind of graduated high school, got married, settled down, had babies. I did not. I actually uh, moved to Mexico when I was 19. Wow. Yeah. I spent three years living there. Um, I was supposed to go just for three, maybe six months and then ended up just really falling in love with the culture. I was in an area with very few fellow Americans. So very, um, very much thrown into the culture, didn't speak the language, and uh, quickly just fell in with some really awesome local friends who forced me to learn the language. Um, So fun fact, I'm actually fluent in Spanish. (laughs) I was going to say, habla espanol. (laughs) Si! Si hablo y de hecho, our daughter, Eleanor, just started her first week of preschool this week at a Spanish immersion school here in our community that just opened. So we're trying to teach our kids the language as well. Justin actually speaks... Quite a bit, although he's very uh, humble about it. Um, and it's a really important part of our community here. We're an agricultural community, first and yep. foremost. Yep. Um, so it is like really important to me that my kids speak it. And yeah,
0: that's really cool. <laughs> um, what part of Mexico was it? Um, so
1: the state is called Nayarit. Um, okay. a lot of people know the coastal side of the state because Bachelor in Paradise is filmed there. <laughs> 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 There's some really cool resort towns, um, but I was from the inland city of Tepic, which is actually the capital. So okay, um, and
0: and and that is like, because I mean I lived in California, so I know Cabo and that part of yeah. you know, and it, so is it Sia Cortez? Is it? Is it's
1: it the Pacific coast, coast side. So like, do you are familiar with Puerto Vallarta? That's yep. the, with Vallarta and Guadalajara are the two like closest yep. cities, okay. like kind of right in between. So West Coast side, I guess, but. Yeah, nothing like Cabo, though. Cabo's good, too.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, I think, like, I I, I think of, like, when you talk about being immersed in the, like, it wasn't, it wasn't a community that was built around tourism, right? So, like, it was...
1: (laughs) Not at all. In fact, the the tourist area now that is the, like, coastal cities that are, like, just north um, of Puerto Vallarta that are, like, getting well-known because of things like Bachelor in Paradise. Um, at the time when I was living there in 2006 and se- 05, 06, 07, um, I, I actually did some translating work for the tourism department there because they were trying to get people to like learn about Nayarit and the beaches of Nayarit. It was like all being built up and resorts being built at that time. So somewhere oh. out there on the internet, you can find my voice. <laughs>
0: oh, that's, so cool. <laughs> that's, that's so cool. That's so cool. That's so cool. Yeah, it was fun. And, and was this before or after you went to college, Beth?
1: Uh, I actually didn't go to college. Um, Good for you. You
0: did not (laughs) incur that student debt that I incurred. That's for damn (laughs) sure.
1: Yeah. um, You know, growing up in a big family, my parents couldn't afford to send me to college and I couldn't afford to pay for it myself. Um, It also was not necessarily encouraged in the community I grew up in. Um, Yeah. I grew up in a really religious community and higher learning was sort of frowned upon. So I took a different path that kind of allowed me to get more of a worldly knowledge and get to know other cultures and travel through Europe a little bit as well. Right. After graduating high school. So
2: you went and learned something useful. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I, I, I think that's awesome. I grew up, you know, I wouldn't say, it, but my mother was a Joe witness. So like, like I, it wasn't, it wasn't, I was, I wasn't going to college. It wasn't pushed on me. I just decided to become yeah. an athlete and go to college, but it wasn't like a thing where, you know, a lot of families. It's like college; college it wasn't a thing, right? Like right. when you, yes, when yeah, when you're in a fundamentalist, like God's gonna take care of you, and you know,
1: you, you don't know,
0: need any of that stuff. You don't need any that stuff, right? So <laughs> I, t-
1: <laughs> which turns out there's a little bit of truth to that for some people, but you know,
0: <laughs> right? I mean, yeah, you know, I mean, I think inside of the fact that there's certain things we can't do anything about. Yes. Right. So if you want to call that God or whatever, but like, yeah, yeah, but I get that. But I, I that's really cool that you took that upon yourself and, 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 and and had those experiences. And so yeah. Justin, we know, you know, I said, I know you're from Chicago, um, but are you from Chicago? Like, Are you from Chicago proper also suburbs of Chicago situation? So I'm
2: from the first suburb West of the city. It's called Oak park. Um, a lot of people know Oak park. Uh, I think our most famous uh, citizen was Ernest Hemingway, grew up in Oak Park. I think his quote about Oak Park was, uh, what was it, broad lawns, narrow Uh, (laughs) 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 minds." which uh, things changed a lot since Mr. Hemingway's day because it's a very, very liberal, progressive community now Um, and was even as far back as when I was growing up. I graduated from high school in 1993, uh, grew up in a relatively small family compared to Beth, I have an older brother and a younger sister. Um, Our households were actually completely different growing up. Yeah, Um, (laughs) College was very much uh, encouraged in my family. It was, uh, was I think it's safe to say it was my father's dream that all his kids went to college Mm because he was the type of guy that put himself through college and, didn't want to see his kids have to go through the struggles that he did. So I ended up graduating from high school in 1993 and heading out to your neck of the woods. I went to school in Philadelphia at the university of Pennsylvania and uh, matriculated into school already knowing what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, uh, supposedly, which was (laughs) I went into college with the major declared of being a chemical engineer. And so, uh, you know, I got through, I guess, Seven semesters in, I was like, wow, I don't know if this is for me, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but I did graduate with a bachelor's of science in chemical engineering and, uh, went into the chemical engineering field. I further solidifying my, the doubts I was starting to have, uh, more than three quarters of the way through, uh, undergrad, but uh, did a short stint as a chemical engineer as far as a career went. And I was a plant engineer for an old Sherwin-Williams paint plant on the south side of Chicago. Um, And just, it wasn't working for me at all. Uh, It was the late 90s. I had a good science background. I decided to start doing um, programming, software uh, engineering for startup company in Chicago. And it was around this time that I really started to, uh, well, it's when I first, uh, it was my first interaction with wine. And it was a pretty quick and steep learning curve and uh, fell in love with wine itself, the whole culture around wine, the history of wine, everything about wine just totally uh, went crazy for it. I was living fairly close to one of the all-time great bottle shops, which is no longer in business, called Sam's Wine and Spirits, north and Clybourn in Chicago, for those of you that are familiar with the area. Um, but it was one of these stores, incredible inventory, incredible staff, um, awesome walk-around tastings, seminar tastings, and that's really where I cut my teeth and started to grow my knowledge base about wine. Um, Yeah, and so that's that's sort of my life from zero to to falling in love with wine around the age of 24
0: or so. Well, you know what's interesting is that I was in law school at Rutgers Camden from 1993
1: to 1996.
0: So um, and hanging out in Philly. So we have to we have to we have to talk Philly for a second here, man. (laughs) Let's do it.
1: I love hearing you talk Philly. So yes.
2: So and to wait, to all the Philly people out there, in no way am I saying I am the foremost authority on Philly. I know y'all got me. <laughs> I don't want to get punched in the nose. No, 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 it's not.
0: It's not that. It's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not. It's not Not like uh, just, um you know, questions like uh Billy Bob's Jim's or Gino's. What was your she say? Billy Bob's. Where are you pulling that from? <laughs> Come on <now. laughs> um I. Yeah. I dated I dated a woman or two who went to the University of Pennsylvania. So I spent some time I was in West Coast, Man, that's going deep. Um, <laughs>
2: you didn't mention
0: Pat's. Pats oh yeah, yeah, pets. <laughs> because well, you know, like Pat, it's, it's the big debate. Is usually, Pat's or Geno's, right? Like of all the Philly people down in South Philly, like it's Pat's or Geno's, right? Um, yeah, they're right across
2: the street from you. But show.
0: Billy Bob's is right near campus. But you know, I would think you probably venture down to South Street, down to South Philly. Um, sure. You know, so. So
2: be, between Pats and Geno's, I was always a little bit more of a Pats guy, um, but I wasn't adverse to walking across the street for a second one. Um, <laughs> and then, yeah, you mentioned Jim's, which, you know, Jim's is uh, down on South Street. Yeah. It's not the oldest, like Pats and Geno's sort of got the, the the grandfathered into the greatest discussion, but most people ride for Jim's. You
0: know? I ride with Jim's, man. <laughs>
2: And very few people ride for Billy Bobs. Yeah,
0: I mean Billy Bobs is just straight convenience. Like it's one o'clock in the morning, and you're banged up, you just come from the Irish pub. You yeah. um, know. Oh, yeah, man. Hey man, it's like it's like cheesesteak, onions, whiz. That was my thing, man. No, oh, you're a whiz guy. I'm a whiz guy. <laughs> As a pro, the provolone guy. Yeah, I was gonna say uh, so. Hilarious. So, that, so you
2: know, the let's get cool thing—the cool thing about Philly—I um, don't know if New York has this. I'm—I don't, I'm not as familiar with Boston, but every neighborhood has their own cheesesteak place that people oh, are yeah, right, right, right. so dedicated and loyal to. Which, coming from Chicago,
1: you can get on board with that. <laughs> and
2: like, Pete, Every every neighborhood has its own pizza place that people ride for, and. Right. Um, to a lesser extent, but it's sort of in the zeitgeist right now. Italian beef places, too. I was going
0: to, that was why I was like, <laughs> with the pizza. I'm like, but okay, Italian beef versus cheesesteak. Help help people who are listening oh. to, to explain a difference, right? And they're, oh. they're way different. They're so different. different. But people will be like, what do you think? It's, it's like shaved beef. What I mean, tell people the difference between a, a, a proper Italian beef and a cheesesteak.
2: Well, cheesesteak, uh, the steak is grilled. And uh, onions are sort of de rigueur, right? And,
0: and, and by grilled, he means griddled actually, not, griddled. not grilled, sorry, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's right, griddled
2: and chopped up with yep. the... yeah, yeah. double yeah, yeah.
0: spatula, right.
2: <laughs> get, get that scrapple out of the gutter, throw it yeah. on your <laughs> um,
0: An American Um,
2: <laughs> and then a lot of cheesesteaks, people like shrooms on them, uh, cheese obviously goes on there, Italian beefs. The beef is marinated. It's, you know, most people would equate it more to a French dip. um, Yeah. Even though it's not. Uh, So it's beef that's shaved thin and marinated and just sits in the juices all day. And uh, (laughs) we're
1: making it sound really good.
2: (laughs) Oh, it's fantastic. As you know, there's no cheese. Um, There's not really onions. I'm sure there are some places that do onions, but when you order, so you go to a cheesesteak place and you say with to get onions, you say shrooms, yeah. get shrooms and then you say your cheese, provolone or provi, uh, whiz, as you right. pointed out for cheese whiz. Um, when you walk into a beef place, it's very similar. You walk in and you say beef, juicy, hot, uh, which means they dunk the bun, uh, hot the peppers way. or sweet. You say beef, juicy, sweet. And then I personally like a combo. I was going to say,
1: don't forget the combo.
2: <laughs> uh, you, you throw, a, you throw an, a, an Italian sausage in there. And so, mm. yeah. Wow. Yeah, so combo, juicy, hot. That's And I grew up in the town just south of uh, uh, another, uh, actually, uh, Melrose Park, another suburb. And Melrose Park houses the greatest beef house in the world called Can't Johnny's. See. Johnny's Beefs, Melrose Park, North Avenue. There you go. That's all you that. need to know.
1: So, <laughs> combo juicy hot for Justin, beef juicy sweet for me. Just in case anyone was wanting that hot information about it. Yeah, there you <laughs> That's go. Our this, is, is, this is
0: this is this is the, what people love about the podcast. We have, this we, is we,
1: the content we, that we need.
0: <laughs>
2: right, By the way, Reason One of the Bear did a great job, sort of exposing the world of beefs to the you know the. Outside the Chicago, greater Chicagoland area,
1: yeah. I feel yeah, like most people don't get it. They I do know about certainly it. Certainly, never heard about him before I met this guy, and he took me home. I was yeah. like,
2: wow, "What is this?" Going to <laughs>
1: <Germany>. <laughs> <laughs> but wait, hot sandwich talk. Going back to Philly, let's talk about the true unsung sandwich hero in oh, Philly. That's
2: True, yeah, the Rose Park, the DeNek sandwiches.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, that yeah.
0: Terminal, man.
1: Whoa. Yeah.
0: Oh. Yeah, I mean. Wow. That is, that is, that is, yeah. With the broccoli, Rob. Yeah, yeah. That is yeah. a life-changing sandwich. It is a life-changing sandwich. And
2: that's, yeah, that's a little like the Italian beef. No one knows about it. Yeah. outside
0: really. No, yeah. no. I think it's, it's been like Guy Fieri might've shown him one time. Anthony Bourdain might've went to a place, but people really never, it hasn't. I think the I love broccoli them. Rob
2: scares people off.
0: Yeah, it does. Most people, it's too bitter. I don't know. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. I it's like broccoli great, Rob. It's a great sandwich.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
1: Wow. What, our, <laughs> wow. We took a turn here. <laughs> Marv, we might need
0: to uh rename the podcast. No, man. This is this is this is where we go. Listen, this is what we do here. We, well, we yeah,
2: we're passionate about flavor. We're yeah, exa- about
0: exactly. exactly. That's we're that's doing. we're building like like you know, and then while I mean we gotta stay here just a little bit longer because and then um so Jersey, we have Italian hot dogs, oh. right? So Hot dog, uh peppers, onions, and potatoes.
1: Potatoes?
0: Potatoes.
1: Oh. Okay.
0: All right. All right. Chicago. Tell about this the Chicago hot dog. Oh, it's
1: legendary. Yeah.
0: Not his
2: favorite. Wow. No, I do I love Chicago hot dogs. <laughs> this whole aversion to ketchup thing. It's the ketchup. Been, listen, sick.
0: literally, there's a billboard, uh, uh Mike's amazing hot honey i don't know if they have that in california but there's this brand out here mike's amazing hot honey now they're making mayonnaise now they're making mustard and they have billboards all over the highways in Jersey. like and it's like but seriously who puts ketchup on a hot dog <laughs> who puts ketchup on a hot dog justin and why and why it's not i like it all
2: man like <laughs> everything possible on there um Another interesting thing about the Chicago food scene, uh, Chicago hot dogs in particular. So most people know about the neon green relish. um, Mustard, onions, um, the full pickle, the tomatoes. What most people don't know about is the sport peppers. And uh, the sport peppers are like a key component to the indigestion later that night. (laughs) It is... uh, I can't imagine having a fully loaded Chicago dog without some sport peppers mm, 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 mm. And so sport peppers are important. And again, you know, there's uh, sport peppers you can't find outside of Chicago for the most part. Jardinier, which is the spicy. Yeah, yes, I know
0: about Jardinier. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, the spicy bit of Italian beefs. So you don't really find much. At, well, they say they carry Jardinier here in the grocery stores. It has cauliflower in it. It's a disaster.
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> I <laughs> terrible.
2: Um, so yeah jardiniers a whole culture in chicago that the food culture in chicago is just awesome just like philly you know philly's got the the soft pretzels on every corner that oh really yeah. yeah. understands outside of philly like when you say to people oh yeah there's a there's a pretzel stand on every corner in philadelphia <laughs> they have like you can't wrap your head around it until you've seen it and experienced mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. And there'll be people that just eat three braided pretzels with mustard <laughs> for lunch. Every- <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> and God bless them. God bless Billy yes. for that. So uh, yeah, Chicago dogs, you can sort of take it uh, as far as how it's cooked. Anyway, boiled, uh, griddled, uh, char dog, so on and so forth. But it's really all about the toppings, but. No, some places they roll it up with the fries. I don't know if that's what you mean by an Italian. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. You actually kind of do like home fries. So imagine home fries with potatoes, with peppers and onions. you put that on there. Mustard, I don't do ketchup, even though you could do ketchup because you got potatoes, but... um, Speaking of food culture, so what are you, would would you grow up like with Southern food, Beth, would you say? Oh, very
1: much so, yes. (laughs) Yeah, chicken fried steak, fried catfish, hush puppies. Um, But I mean, obviously, Texas is known for its barbecue. Um, There is no better barbecue in the world. I will take anyone on from the Carolinas, from anywhere. I mean, sorry. (laughs) Sorry, not sorry. Texas barbecue is the best. Um, We were just back home visiting my family in May uh, over Memorial Day weekend. And I think we had barbecue, I mean, lunch and dinner every day. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Um, You know, we got to hit all my favorite spots. My absolute all-time favorite pit is Cooper's. Uh, The original Cooper's in Lano. Let's just be clear because they did open a location in downtown Austin. That is good, good, but it's not the original pit. The, the original, original pit is, the original. is yeah. it's the original for a reason. But yeah, you know, you you've got a piece of butcher paper for a plate. Yeah, you've got you know a loaf of white bread. Your baked beans. Your coleslaw. Your
0: don't
2: forget the pickles.
1: Taking it. Oh, you gotta have the
0: because <laughs> you that gotta nice cut piece. all that richness. You have to have that acid.
1: A little bit of acid for yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah. So yes, very much so. I. I love the food from Texas. Um, my mom cooked every night growing up. So, and she's actually Czechoslovakian. My mom is. Okay. Well, so a lot of, you know, Eastern European in- inspired dishes in our house growing up. But as far as all the Texas favorites, my dad born and raised, like he's fourth generation Texan. So, um, a lot of that as well in my household growing up. A lot yes. of heavy food. lot
0: <laughs> You had, a you had, you had, um, you probably had relatives at the Alamo, if <laughs> he's for <fortunate>. years. Probably. <laughs> and, so, and so I love this this discussion we're doing about flavor and food because um, I've come to know through watching TV that Houston has an incredible international food scene too now. So like, there's yeah. this, there's like beyond like down South Sand, so there's Tex-Mex, but there's like a huge Vietnamese population is there. So these incredible mashups, Of southern and then Southeast Asian food and particularly in Houston. So when you go back, do you guys go try out new places or
1: you know, we don't travel in Houston a lot because um pretty much all my family is in the Austin area now. Um so but
2: I usually do do Houston solo. Solo, yeah.
1: yeah. He has a good friend from college that lives there, and so we usually dart over there to see them while I'm visiting my family. And yeah, I've I've heard the same thing. I mean, I haven't experienced it too much firsthand, but uh, a lot of insane restaurants popping up in Houston, and um, we actually distribute our wines in Texas, fun fact. Um, so, a little bit of presence well. in Houston. We do well in Houston. Yeah, huh? which is really cool. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's an amazing food scene, and yeah, we didn't talk about Tex-Mex. There's Tex-Mex, which he's oh not yeah. enough, but you know it's not for everyone, but uh, I love it.
0: I'll yeah. Like it. Okay, so. <laughs> no, I mean stuff like that is delicious. Like.
1: You can't eat it every
0: day. No, computer, no, no, no. But it's just, just like Base, just like you said with barbecue. The first time I went to Austin, we did the whole Franklin thing, which is like in twenty. Oh, nice! What do you
1: think?
0: It was good, but it <laughs> ate so much barbecue. Like I got smoke sick. <laughs> like, oh <no! laughs> like I was like burping smoke like hours <laughs> later i was like what is wrong with me it so, is funny that does happen you <laughs> know like you could eat too much barbecue yeah you can
1: you can um it's a thing
0: but uh no when you said I, i'm dying for some queso i miss i miss i miss california just because of mexican food like i miss like as soon as i get like to texas arizona california yeah. i just go crazy for mexican food oh, yeah. of, of which Chicago has an incredible Mexican food scene, though. Now, Justin, right? Like it's it's like
2: always has. To, well, I don't know about always, but I remember uh, going back to high school. My friends and I every Saturday night would drive down to Marquette Park, which is uh, the neighborhood just east of Midway Airport, and we'd go to a burrito place. This was before like there were burritos on every corner, mm-hmm. and uh, it was El Gallo de Oro. And, <laughs> de Oro. and uh, yeah. yeah, we'd go to the Mexican neighborhood and get. Get burritos and it is now, it's just everywhere. But uh, food scene Mexican food scene in Chicago obviously is driven um higher end, it's the number one high end Mexican food scene due to Rick Bayless, yeah, Rick Bayless, yeah, uh, Bumbo and frontera Grill, such and
1: talented dude,
2: Choco, yeah, and so. Uh, Chicago Mexican food for a very long time was synonymous with really expensive, awesome James Beard winning. There's some good hole in
1: the walls, too. (laughs) But yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: burritos have encroached on the hot dogs. It's uh, (laughs) (laughs) for sure. But yeah, the the Mexican food scene out here is unparalleled. It's awesome. We're very lucky.
0: For sure. For sure. So, um, Beth, you. Traveled in Europe, you lived, it's easy as it was three years in Mexico. Yeah. And then what'd you do when you when you returned back to the States from Mexico?
1: Back to where? Sorry,
0: to the States. When you returned oh, okay. back to the United States, yeah.
1: So, uh, so, my parents had moved to Austin. And so I moved back in with my parents for a couple of months and quickly realized that that was not.
2: You'd grown <laughs> up.
1: <laughs> but you were in Austin,
0: though. Like, I got props to them. Yeah. They, got, they got into Austin probably in a good time.
1: They did. They did. They bought at a great time. They live, actually, they bought a house out on Lake Travis. Um, They were like, this is going to be our forever home. We're going to retire here. And uh, yeah, it's beautiful out there. Love it. But, you know, I've been away for long enough that, you know, a lot of my friends had gone on and done other things. And I was kind of facing this like mid-20s life crisis of like, what am I going to do? What do I want to do with my life? Um, So, yeah, that kind of led me out to California. So had you out, Hey, right.
0: yeah,
1: <laughs> I don't come to your job and tell
0: you how to make the wine. No, that was. Your, <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't even tell you. Um, yeah, but he's a great question, Jeff. Yeah. So, like you mentioned that, I, and and you know big dreams but like what what led you out to california seriously no.
1: yeah so okay i have two versions of the story i guess i'll tell you the real version um have i heard this one <laughs> <laughs> definitely you have um so towards the tail end of my time in mexico i met a guy who... it's always
0: about a boy or a girl just, know, just, when people I move know. across the country it is it, there's nothing wrong with it because you get no, you're in there with no, the right no, guy right right yeah
1: yeah. He, he was spending a couple months in the same town that I was living in. Yep. And he was from Sonoma County, California, which yep. I, again, never heard of. I right. was like, I know Southern, Cal- I know Orange County, backwards and forward.
0: Right.
1: Don't know anything about where you live. Um, anyway, we started dating and then uh, I moved back to Austin. Um, <clears throat> kind of my, my career, my, my job that I was, I was teaching at a university, actually, in Mexico. I was teaching English as a second language. And uh, my contract was up with the university I was working with. My visa was up. And I was, like, kind of at a crossroads with this guy that I was getting to know and dating. And, like I said, I went back home to Austin. And we were doing the long-distance thing. And I was, like, looking for jobs in Austin and living in my parents' house, trying to figure out my next move. And, uh, anyway, he invited me to come out to Santa Rosa to visit. And, uh, yeah, it took, like, literally one trip for me to be, like, are you kidding me you grew up here like you grew up in this town like this is a real place where people live like wine country people live here um so yeah I was sold and uh it didn't take long for me to figure out a way to make it happen drove my uh my little 1995 Nissan Altima with gosh I don't know 140,000 miles on it had driven it back and forth to Mexico her name is R.I.P. Bertha um drove it 24 hours straight with my best friend we drove Started in the middle of the night from Austin and drove all the way to L.A., spent the night in L.A. and then drove up to. Uh, wow. Northern California. And uh, <laughs>
2: where'd you guys stay in
1: L.A.? Uh, with Ryan's uh, nice aunt. Guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah we did the whole Route 66 thing?
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, we did. Uh, gosh, I don't even remember the route. Uh, been route 66, I guess yeah,
0: so. so. Yeah. Yeah. Route 66 to the 10. 10. Yeah. 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 And then and then uh, we took the 101 up to Santa Rosa. Yep. That took the
1: five. five, Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Should have took the one (laughs) on (laughs) one. After all that driving, (laughs) there was no way I was gonna do the the 101 one Pro
0: pro tip, take the 101.
1: (laughs) If you have nothing to do, take the 101. If you're not in the time frame, Uh, yeah, yeah, so moved out here. Um, so uh, yeah, it didn't take long, a few months of us dating in person and getting to know his family and his friends and his community to where we realized very quickly it was mutually not going to work out. (laughs) (laughs) And thank God, because uh, it led me to wine and then wine led me to Justin. So, and then now here we are. Yeah, you're you're
0: skipping steps. So it led you to wine. So, so like, yeah. So what was your first job in California?
1: So my first job in California, I was working as a registered dental assistant in a dental office. Wow! So well, how different is that, right? I know. See this? See this? Is, come on back. I know. <laughs> I, I've lived a thousand lives already. I've lived a thousand lives. So now I've gone from English teacher at a at a University of Mexico to dental assistant in a dental office, right? And I got that job partly thanks to uh, my ex's uh, sister, older sister. She was working in this office and she offered me a job. And it was, you know, it was a good job and I was into it. Um, But uh, it wasn't for me. You know, I didn't really have the type of personality for it, I guess, because although skill set wise, it was not difficult to learn. It was, you know, I was good at it. But, um, you know, when people walk in for root canal and you're like, hey, how are you? (laughs) You know, I'm 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 fresh off Texas, you know, and I'm just like yeah, totally yes. like welcoming, you know. And people are just like, I don't want to be here. I'm right. stated. I'm. In- <laughs> I, have to, I have to pay for this, and I have to have a root canal. I have to have needles in my mouth right now. Um, and so, meanwhile, I was where I was living at the time when I was dating my ex was um, his grandparents had this beautiful uh, large estate um, on a property in Santa Rosa, where um, a lot of people know it because the tubs fire cleared, um, yeah, cleared the area in 2017, Fountain Grove. Um, and just down the street from their home where I was living with them in, uh, the West Wing of their home <laughs> was a winery. Um, which was really strange because it was a residential area. So it's really weird that there was even a winery there. And so on my way to the office every morning, you know, seven in the morning wearing scrubs, kind of not feeling super inspired about my, my, my course in life. I would see this sign for this winery, like up the hill. And so I was always curious about it. And then one day um, I got home from work early enough to where the gate was still open. They were still they were still open, it was like 4.30. So I'm like, I'm just gonna drive up there and see. And so I start driving up this long driveway and I start driving through this uh, like random art installation. And I'm like, what is this? It's all these crazy cool sculptures mm-hmm. and I'm mm-hmm. driving up this slow winding road. There's deer, <laughs> all these beautiful, really beautiful, beautiful old oak trees. Yeah. Then I pass a building and it's very clearly a winery. There's barrels out front, there's tanks, whatever. I keep going up the hill. And as you turn the corner you look up and there's just this beautiful state building up on the hillside overlooking all these vineyards. And I'm like, what is this place? Um, so I was totally, it's madly in love. So I went home and I was like researching the winery, researched the family that owned it. And it was Paradise Ridge Winery. Also oh, a lot wow. of people heard of it because it was the only winery in Sonoma County that burned completely to the ground mm. in 15 fire. Mm. Um, but I was, I was totally smitten with this place. I was like, this truly is paradise. Like, this is the most beautiful property I've ever seen. But anyway, um, so I walked in uh, later that week wearing, you know, like pencil skirt, nice blouse, resume in hand. And I walked into the tasting room and I said, hi, I just moved here from Texas. I don't know anything about wine, but I'm very interested in learning about wine. And I love this property. It's beautiful. And I would like a job. <laughs> and they laughed at me. <laughs> So, um, they said, oh, well, you know, it's December. Um, it's our slow season. We're not hiring. And also, you know, we probably need you to learn a little bit about wine before you're going to be working in a winery. And so anyway, um, I did, I I went off and I kind of just did my own like personal research. Right. And then in March of the following year, I got a phone call and they hired me back. I mean, they called me back for an interview and they hired me for a position in the tasting room. So that was very much like a dip my toe in the water um, just kind of getting to know from the social side of things, you know, hospitality, which mm-hmm. I like I was like a fish in water. I was like, this is awesome. I love it. And meeting then you, you were well.
2: running the tasting room, what, two years later? <laughs>
1: two years later, I was running the tasting room. <laughs> so
0: Yeah, they went from uh it's December and you don't know about wine to be like, you our tasting room. <laughs>
1: pretty much. It's exactly how it happened, which was kind of nuts. Like when I looked at Welcome it, to it, the
0: wine industry.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: For sure. No
1: experience required, I guess. No, no, no experience um, required. <laughs> yeah, and it was during that time that I was working at Paradise Ridge that um, I got the chance to work Harvest at Vinify, which is a custom crush facility where Argo was making their wines. And still and is. It. And still is. Yeah. Right, right.
0: So, Justin, for you, um, like, I hear chemical engineering degree from UPenn, and and uh, I'm like, I'm sure you could have got a job at Dow right down the street in Delaware. I mean, they must they must just... They must just come up to campus all the time. Now you did say you don't like it, but so so, what had you decide to um, go back to Illinois, back to Chicago after graduating?
2: Yeah. So uh, <clears throat> why did I go back there? That's a great question. <laughs> it's uh, we we could probably do a couple hours on that one, but uh, you know, I, I interviewed for some jobs out on the East Coast after. College and I mentioned that I was pretty lukewarm on the prospects of everything, and uh, decided after spending the summer out in Philly, which not, summer in '97 in Philly was miserable. Man, oh, was I crazy. was there.
0: Oh, yeah, oh, no, no. you were I was, actually. You were I, I moved. I I left in September, but I was there. Yes, yes, yes. I used to live by the Art Museum. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Oh, that's pretty nice. Seventeenth. Yeah. It wasn't nice back then. It was still a little sketch.
2: Yeah, it's probably still a little sketch, but yeah, uh, but yeah, I, I rode crew at Penn, so I was, okay.
0: Like, oh, you off. left that so, out. He, you yeah. he know, he rode crew at Penn. That's Lottie a very Lottie demanding Lottie. sport, <laughs> and that's like and the Ivy League is like the NBA or the MLB of of, of crew. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty
2: competitive. It was fun though. It was awesome. Um, I remember rowing at Rutgers once. That was uh, that was harrowing. I think is. <laughs> What river? J-
0: oh, 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 the Rat the Raritan River. That's on the Raritan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah And New Brunswick. Um, yeah. No, but it was
2: great. rowing at all those all those super famous places. Those are stories.
0: Yeah. I mean, I mean, I I we I joke. We la- we make a joke, but it, it, it when you walk on these old campuses, you know, like I think Rutgers was the second chartered uh, school in America. Queens College, like, 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 I I like I was at Yale doing a lecture and and like. Like, those schools, like Yale, they're like forts. Like, they're like, they're like, they <laughs> fortresses, Yeah, right? Like, co- big concrete walls, but, um, but they're very, it, it is a piece of our American history that I think is very interesting. So, um, so your road crew, but yeah, so um, you were lukewarm on the idea, so.
2: Yeah, and so I think ultimately I headed home just because sort of like uh, living in parallel with Best Life, um, wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. And going home seemed like the safest bet, which uh, you know, in <laughs> retrospect, maybe I would have preferred to have done something else. But all, all roads led here, and I'm very happy with yeah. Today, right, so right. Uh, went home and just looked into what my prospects were back in Chicago, and ultimately ended up working this job. At man, this this factory was like the seventh ring of hell. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know maybe a little bit of self sabotage there as well worked it worked there for uh 18 months or something like that and then um st- said eh, this isn't for me and spent some time post that doing like temp work and just sort of trying to find my way did some traveling at the time um did end up spending a summer down in chiapas in mexico so Sort of that that the wayward twenty mid early yeah. to mid twenties, um, which I think a lot of a lot of men sort of go through, um, but I had it pretty bad, and I was really not pleased with sort of my either my station in life or my prospects. I didn't mm-hmm. necessarily see where things were going to go um, that I was going to be happy with, and a lot of people that were close to me at that time were like damn, you were one miserable son of a bitch at that time. (laughs) Um, Well, I did end up finding um, software engineering coding. And I really enjoyed the creative aspect of that in addition to the independence as well. And so I did that for a number of years. And it was during that time that I was really able to branch out and pursue other interests because I had that independence. I didn't have to go into an office. I was doing remote working before it became all the rage in 2020. Right. Um, <laughs> and so this was right around the turn of the millennium. Um, okay. And I remember being at my first software job on 9-11 and hmm. seeing that all happen um, from the TVs there. And um, it was after that job that I went out and did start doing independent coding. And Uh, like I said, it was during this time that I started getting like really spreading my wings as far as investigating other interests, because in college, you know, as a time when a lot of people delve into, you know, start figuring out what they like, expanding their horizons on and so forth as an engineer, you don't really get to do that. Um, I was also, as I mentioned, I rode crew, so I was an athlete. I also swam my freshman year at college. So I did sports that we had morning and afternoon practices. Mm -hmm. There just wasn't a lot of time to be like, oh, what else am I interested in besides uh, covalent bonds and making myself (laughs) miserable doing exercise? Um, And so, uh, (laughs) um, yeah, I started doing independent programming, started falling in love with wine at that time. And really came about in a a very organic way and very uh, subtle way as well started with you know a single bottle of wine um on a picnic with a date and it sort of grew from there nothing you know it's not like someone poured me a 1961 Latour or something and blew my my doors off um but i fell in love with initially that that culture of wine i wasn't much of a Beer drinker, uh, even going back to college, I never really enjoyed the taste of it that much, um, especially forties. I thought they were particularly disgusting.
0: Oh yeah, forties were all the rage in the nineties. Oh,
2: they sure were in the early nineties. Uh, Thank you, Doctor Dre. Exactly. <laughs> but um, it's uh, it was at that time, you know, wine was good, it was delicious, it was a great mm-hmm. beverage. It mm-hmm. was something that you know, often in your early 20s, you go out with your buddies and everyone's drinking something different from each other, right? They're mm-hmm. having parallel experiences with mm-hmm. each other. Mm-hmm. Looking back, one of the things that I really loved about wine was you were having this experience with the person and mm-hmm. um, you were, it was shared. And I thought that was fantastic. Um, and then again, I, I lived near this fantastic wine shop that you know stands was probably about as big as a, a medium-sized target it was this huge warehouse mm-hmm. um and the staff was incredibly knowledgeable and wine was quite a bit less expensive at the time um, <laughs> you know you could go and buy a six dollar bottle of wine from the south of france that was really fantastic mm-hmm. um and then they had these tastings and you pay 20 to 30 bucks to get in and taste everything in the world, top end stuff. And, um, that really helped give me exposure to the finer things in the wine world. And it was from there you know, that I started reading books about wine and getting deeper and deeper. I remember, uh, a seminar that I saw Michel Chaputier presenting his wines at one point. That was really cool. I remember seeing Sparky Marquis presenting his wines, um, Christian Moyo. I mean, everyone came through Chicago, and mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. was pretty. It was pretty awesome. But uh, in time, I started to wonder, you know, this is some really fantastic stuff, and why? What it is so special and it is so different than anything else I've ever taken a sip of before, where does it come from? What makes it so magical? And I think everyone who falls in love with wine has moments like this. Yeah. And for me, probably going back to my educational background, I said, I need to know how this is made. I'm going to make it. And so I started looking for ways to make wine, which in Chicago in the early two thousands was not necessarily an easy feat. Um, but I started with concentrate kits. Yep. I remember making a, a five-liter carboy of Cabernet Sauvignon from a concentrate kit. Um, I did it at a hobby shop, a brew shop, if you will, down on the south side of Chicago. And that was the first time I was ever introduced to what tannins were because they came out uh, powdered in a in a packet. (laughs) And the guy that was showing us how to make the wine was like, so with these wines, because you don't have the skins, you gotta add tannins. And I knew what none of this meant at the time, but uh man, that wine turned out horrible. But it was a really, really really cool experience. And it uh it it led me to want more Mm because I got that taste of how you how do you where does this stuff come from? It's a process. It's you know this is not making sunny delight. This is, uh, this is there's a reason it's the first miracle in the Bible, if you will. Yeah, uh, and Beth it, it, would know <laughs> uh, what, what scripture is that,
1: Beth? <laughs> <laughs> right? It is
2: truly, uh, and I say it every, every harvest because we ferment all our wines through spontaneous fermentation or native fermentation. Oh, wow. And you, you leave the winery at night and you just have this vat of grape juice with skins and grapes in it. And you come back in the morning, it's this,
1: it is miraculous,
2: gurgling cauldron yeah. spitting off CO two and all these aromas, and you're just like, what the hell happened here last night? Were the gnomes <laughs> in here? Uh,
1: <laughs> it is, to experience that firsthand is is, it is like a miracle. It's, it's so really cool. It's
2: really cool. So um, anyway, I ended up uh, to pursue this this curiosity. I found a place here on the west coast um, that sold. Uh, flash frozen grapes and five gallon pails. And then they sent them across the country on rail car. And so I bought myself three, five gallon pails of grapes and ended up running fermentations in my father's basement in uh, garbage cans, food grade garbage cans, which are really one of the most important pieces of equipment in the wine industry, believe it or not. That doesn't uh, sound very sexy. <laughs> 35 gallon white brute garbage cans. Man, we use a lot of those, but, um, ran my fermentations in there and did the whole process following along in a book, almost like a, you know, following along in the joy of cooking or something, but pitching yeast and, you know, put, punching down with my hands and pressing by using a nylon bag and squeezing the juice, separating it from the skins and putting it in carboys, putting malolactic uh, bacteria in there to get the malolactic fermentation done little, uh, bubble, uh, stoppers on top to watch the the (laughs) CO2 come out the whole nine yards. And that was really fantastic. I loved that working with the raw materials. And it was then that I was like, I need to find a way to get out to wine country and experience this process. Now, at that time, I had already started coming out to Napa and Sonoma for vacations, long weekends. I've discovered the culture of tasting rooms and Mind you, I'm in Chicago. Uh, you know, you're in Chicago in February. You land in Napa Valley. You think you truly died and gone. To
0: well, that. you put on shorts, right? I <laughs> have on, like, all their, 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 their down coats. Like It's yeah. 55 degrees, bro.
2: And you're of like, what's, what's that thing in the sky that's yeah. great? And <laughs> it's sending warmth my way. Um, and the food culture, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Um, and so, I was, I'd started to immerse myself in the culture of internet wine bulletin boards. And I think it was the old West Coast Wine Network bulletin board, um, where I reached out to a handful of winemakers, I DM'd them, and I was like, hey, I would love to come work harvest if you need any help on game. And I really didn't get any responses. It was Very sad, Um, but there ended up being a winemaker that posted a uh, a sort of APB. Hey, anyone that wants to help us sort our Cabernet grapes, they're coming in a little early, we need the help. And it was sort of a post for local people in Sonoma, but uh, I hopped on a plane, flew out and saw my first production side of the wine industry, came to learn that If you are out in Sonoma during harvest season and you are able-bodied, you will be put to work. (laughs) And that is true. I I actually just posted uh, on Wine Berserkers, the Wine Berserkers bulletin Mm -hmm. board. And I said, Hey, if anyone wants to come help during harvest this year, this is how I got into the industry. We're always trying to uh, pay it forward. If you will, we've hosted a number of people generally through restaurants and distribution relationships and shown them the ropes of winemaking, but, uh, posted it on wine berserkers for the first time uh, a couple weeks ago. And we have, we have a gentleman coming out and helping us in October this year, which I, I love the opportunity for people who are wine curious to mm-hmm. come out here and get their hands dirty and do a ton of work from 6am to 6pm and then drink a lot of <laughs> beer afterwards and wake up the next day and start all over again. Mm-hmm. Um, So that's really how I I got my start came out in 06 and 07 working harvest. And at the end of the 2007 harvest had the opportunity to buy a ton of grapes from a vineyard owner. I'd gotten to know working the harvest. Um, This was at Vinify actually where we still make our wines and uh, Vinify allowed us, allowed me to make the wines there and with under uh, their bond. And that was the start. Those, that first ton of grapes became 40 plus cases of Syrah that we bottled a couple of years later. And that ended up being the first Argo wine. I called it the preamble at the time. And um, from there, each successive harvest added a, a ton of a different variety, Chardonnay in 08, Pinot in 09, and then Cabernet in 2010. And by the 2011 vintage, it was pretty clear to me that it was no longer a hobby that, I had left life in Chicago behind. I was no longer a soft, I was no longer writing code. I was really making wine and um, selling it had made some distribution relationships, gotten some good press. And that was the year I said, all right, I'm going to make a go at it leading into the 2011 harvest. And, uh, that's where the story takes a very interesting turn.
0: So let's—that's wonderful. Thank you for sharing all that. Um, let's let's back up a little bit. Um, what was—I uh, mean, if you had an NDA, it's over. So what was that first ton of grapes you bought? That first ton of Syrah? What was the vineyard? Oh, <laughs> no, there's <were> no NDAs.
2: <laughs> I didn't know In order to do the NDA thing, you have to have enough money to be buying grapes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but that vineyard is still there, Dry Stack Vineyard. At the time, it was uh, owned by the Young family. They sold it a number of years ago. I, man, I, I apologize. I don't know the owner's name today. I haven't bought fruit from there since 2009. Where, where is it located? Oh, this is in Bennett Valley, right at okay. the corner of Grange Road and Bennett Valley Road on the floor of the valley. And to this day, the majority of our Sonoma uh vineyard sources are in this area yeah so let's talk
0: about let's let's well we got so much to talk about i should have planned for three hours so i'm actually (laughs) drinking the 2018 i need to slow down (laughs) you do need to slow down here's why you have the simpatico ranch
2: chardonnay there yeah just word to the wise we we sold out of that at the winery uh a, a while ago and we actually oversold it so our library is very small that but we had a bottle recently and we found it was good on day one
1: oh uh, even better uh, day two and three
2: but by day three it was yeah unbelievable and that particular vineyard is so special it's uh it's 50 year old vineyard and i think the age of those vines and how cold of uh, a microclimate simpatico ranches really leads to some of the most perplexed not perplexing like mind-boggling uh complex chardonnay i've ever tasted I, I feel very lucky to be able to make wine from that vineyard
0: That's and let's great. talk about bennett valley because a lot of people i mean bennett valley is not i mean Snappa napa valley there's algera dry creek valley russian river valley eh. Let's talk about Bennett Valley we sort
2: of like it to be kept a secret
0: <laughs> <laughs> i know man and
2: there's a there's a little bit of truth in that
0: in that um... no and i and i appreciate and understand that i mean i'm like shit like you don't know, like there's it's like having a band right like oh, this band's so good remember when you, that band that you saw in a bar there was 40 people and then fucking 5 years later they're playing arenas and like you could go talk matter like like so like but I mean, wine, people are going to, and we don't want to blow up your spot, but I mean, Bennett Valley, you, like you said, it's pretty predominant. Your fruit comes in there. So yeah. kind of tell people where it's located in, yeah. in relationship in Sonoma.
2: So the interesting thing about Bennett Valley is it's inland a bit. Um, it's this ancient volcanic crater that it lies on a direct line between the town of Santa Rosa and the town of Glen Ellen. If folks are familiar with Glen Ellen. Yeah. Glen Ellen's a little bit of a one horse town, which Sonoma has a handful of those, but you know, one horse town with like five great restaurants. And so it goes. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, yeah.
0: yeah,
1: A lot of great vineyards.
0: Yeah. yeah. And um, so. And kick-ass English- white Zinfandel. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah.
2: It's uh, very much influenced by the Petaluma Gap. So mm-hmm. it's right. On parallel with Petaluma Gap. It's just inland. It's on the other side of the Sonoma Mountain Range there. Um,
1: Where we need like props. Yeah,
2: but that's all right. Um, So it gets a lot of the fog and a lot of the Pacific Ocean influence there. It's got these great volcanic soils. It's got all these different expositions because you have Bennett Valley, which is the valley floor, and then these hillsides that rise up above it, the Sonoma Mountain AVA, Um, Very cool microclimate, but also does a great job ripening a number of different varieties. Mm -hmm. Does a fabulous job with both Chardon Pinot as well as Syrah and there's a little bit of grenache and I, of I saw
0: I actually Jacob Franklin sent me a I didn't there's a little he sent me a, a grenache from Bennett Valley, which I haven't tried. Oh yeah, they buy Judge Family Vineyard. Yeah, yeah. yeah which is right next door to Dry Stack.
2: And yeah. I bought the Grenache from Judge Family Vineyard in 2010, I believe. Um Great Vineyard, really well managed by Joe and Gail Judge. Great people. But um, the reason I said we we don't mind Bennett Valley being a little bit of a secret is the you know there was a price break to buying fruit in Bennett Valley yeah right, right um and it allowed us to get really high quality grapes and make really fabulous wines in the early days of this this winery um Argo and it I'd say Bennett Valley and Sonoma Mountain played a huge role in us getting to where we are today and the lack of its notoriety if you will. hmm uh, absolutely And the Bennett Valley AVA came, a quick history lesson on the Bennett Valley AVA. It came about through Jess Jackson of Jackson Mm -hmm. Family Wines. Um, Jess, I never met him, but he was, anything he put his mind to, he seemed to be able to do. He's one of those guys. But he bought Matanzas Creek Winery, which Mm -hmm. is very well known. Iconic. And he was the one that pushed for Bennett Valley to become its own AVA. And to this day, there's Jackson Park Winery, which is where they grow a lot of their Merlot and Cabernet Franc, as I understand it, for their Verite label. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's, uh, you know, Bennett Valley is the appellation that Jess Jackson created. And, you know, they uh, they really, I feel like they've moved their focus further north to Alexander Valley. And that might be one of the reasons it remains somewhat lesser known.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, um amazing and so um you the first vintage was the first vintage that's raw what year was that again 07 07 okay and so um like you said you, you started to grow 2011 by 2011 um how many wines were you making
2: oh boy mm-hmm. how many skews um, yeah yeah So 2011 was the first year we made Bastard Tongue Pinot, which was another pivot point for the winery, which is not the one I was referring to earlier,
0: but- um, No, I know, we're gonna, so, like, so, like, the reason why I asked how many skews is because, like, you meet this this bell from Texas, how'd you keep your mind into making your wines, man?
2: she She spent a lot of time at the winery which, uh,
1: <laughs> that, that was essentially our dates was uh yeah t- checking out barrels and blending, yeah,
2: meeting someone during harvest who doesn't work in the wine industry that ain't that's not going to fly <laughs> no.
0: i mean i mean you, you i don't know if you've heard the story of uh, uh the Kaatoris um Phil Katori and his wife I have yeah, not. they they met during harvest as well oh. yeah um yeah. on rossi ranch um and, um, Bad. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, it, it makes sense. So, but like your dates, like what was this thing? Like you looked across a row of vines and you saw her like, how, how was the, like, who caught, like, what was the move? Who made the move? I'm thinking Beth made the move. I knew it.
1: <laughs> how did you know, MJ? <laughs>
0: I'll, I'll let her tell
2: the story. <laughs> well,
1: I mean, so, my first day at the winery I showed up and uh I was told that this particular winery there were you know 20 something vintners right and that it would be like I don't know like a 40 ton day or something crazy like it was going to be a busy day all this fruit was coming in all these different winemakers were on the board and I'm going to meet so-and-so I'm going to meet so-and-so and and he's single and he's single <laughs> and true story um, because I was newly single and I was yep. newly into wine and I was, you know, having fun. And uh, interestingly enough, no one mentioned Justin to me, <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> Classic. it just so uh, turned out that the winery that I was helping that day, he ended up, he was waiting on the sorting line to, yeah. to process some of his fruit. And it's a very, like, there's a lot of camaraderie at the winery, right? Like we're all in it to win it and we're all sharing the same equipment. So you're going to, it's either you get along like family or you don't, right? You mm-hmm. know, and, and, and harvest is uh, not very fun. So he jumped on the line to help his buddies out who uh, I was working for and come to find out, you know, we were across the table from each other and, uh. You know, I think because I was in a new situation, I didn't know what I was doing. I kind of my default was rather to, instead of being shy, I was kind of more like uh, the opposite. I yes. was like kind of giving him shit from word go. And <laughs> we, were, we, were, we were really like our banter was very um, electric from the beginning, I would say. And uh, yeah, and it was interesting because later on uh, in the week, he ended up kind of going around to a few of the interns and saying that he was gonna need some help coming up. And um I gave him my number because, you know, he was gonna need some help. But <laughs> when he asked for help and I responded with uh how did they go? Did I respond with a smiley face and you were like, hmm.
2: I think uh or
1: a winky face. I yeah, don't know. she
2: she helped me out with sorting. <laughs> and we're always <laughs> winemakers are always looking for help with sorting because it's such a brutal process but uh
1: yeah and when you're in the new intern you get the crappy job
2: and i sent thank you texts to oh, a right. couple a couple of interns that helped and most people said you're welcome but not her so, sent a smiley face
1: that's the pg version and, i
0: guess he's like i can help you sort it out
1: <laughs> <laughs> and we kind of went from there yeah um we went on our first date at a, a local pizza joint shocking that we went for pizza for our first date um, and it was it was pretty romantic. It's still to this day one of our favorite restaurants. It's called Ros- Rosso Pizzeria, and uh, yeah, we shared a bottle of red wine. And uh, do you
0: remember the bottle?
1: Uh, it was Italian, wasn't it?
0: doubtful. No, I'm pretty sure.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because there were there were a lot of great wines we had together uh in, in our first few months of dating that like we sure. would bring these bottles and I was like I was I was learning that wine, but I had never had these wines before. I was like, whoa, like, you know, you know your stuff, right? And it's that's the move. That's the wine guy move. <laughs> he was totally like, Such like a cliche. i was like, like, wow. like ruin
0: her palate for like, like, I got her. Oh, he
1: wrecked me. He <laughs> wrecked me. Um yeah, so we were it was it was pretty crazy. Harvest was super busy and he was uh actually
2: harvest wasn't super busy that year, which uh, is probably twenty was, eleven to was notorious. To me, it
1: was busy because I didn't know what harvest was like. Now I am a veteran and a mom of two during harvest. And so it's like game on every year. I'm like game on. Yeah. But back then I was like, wow, this is crazy. And he was very prim and proper around the winery like didn't want anyone to know that we were talking to each other he was like all business at the winery and i would i would oh i would give him such a hard time about it <laughs> and try and flirt with him and he's like nope not having it
2: you still do that oh yeah I still.
1: <laughs> <laughs> except now everybody at the winery is like family to me so they're like, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: and we have been married almost eight years so i think we're allowed to flirt at the winery i think but yeah. I, yeah yeah i think you are i think
0: you're so- <laughs> So 2011 is not only like the 10 year anniversary YouTube meeting, but so this is a 2021 Yeah. um, bastard tongue. Um, That's right. Talk about bastard tongue because it is, it's, 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 you know, my mind goes to Wu-Tang Clan, I old dirty bastard, but like, what, where did this name come from? What, like, what was the, the concept behind it?
1: Yeah. I think you should tell the story of the name because it's, I think we should
2: switch the BT to the Woo W.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That works.
2: I think it's trademarked. (laughs) Um, So yeah, Bastard Tongue, it's interesting because just recently uh, Wine Spectator did their annual Pinot Report and I was reading through it and I noticed towards like the last maybe six paragraphs or something like that, it was all about how in Sonoma County, people are starting to realize that Pinot Noirs don't have to be single vineyard designates to garner uh, greatness, if you will. And that was very much the thrust behind the original Bastard Tongue. Um, I had knocked on a couple doors looking to expand my my Pinot Noir portfolio in 2011 and ended up getting some fruit from a handful of vineyards that uh that I wasn't able to use the vineyard name on, and they, it was they were fabulous barrels of wine, just absolutely delicious. And wasn't sure what I was going to do with them. The brand was still really young, still didn't really know how to uh, structure the portfolio. You could argue I still don't, but uh it <laughs> in. In 2011, ended up blending
1: uh,
2: our 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 two favorite. Pinot Noir vineyards together to create the bastard tongue. And I was a little hesitant at first because I was like, the, the industry sort of says these have to be vineyard designates. And I was making a vineyard designate at the time, Sarah Lee's vineyard, which is now owned by La Crema. But um I was like we can't make our most expensive best Pinot Noir a blend. That that doesn't make sense. And, so we thought. And then ultimately I was like, that yeah, says who? Let's go. Yeah. And Beth at the time was up, was very much when the blending of this came around in 2012, Beth and I were pretty deep in it at that point. And she was like, just get over it and blend the barrels together.
1: I think that was a bit of a blessing of me being somewhat new to the wine industry in that sense of like I, I didn't really necessarily think that we needed to just stick to the rule book because mm-hmm. I was tasting these wines with him and I had been tasting them and you know I'd seen the grapes come into the winery in 2011. I'd been tasting the barrels with him like like I said that was a lot of our dates was barrel tasting at the winery and and kind of fine tuning all of the pinots from that vintage which was an exceptional pinot your vine- or pinot vintage. Um, and I think th- that helped, like having me as a sounding board to a certain extent, because it was like, you just got to get over yourself and do it.
2: And yeah, so ultimately went with the approach of Sonoma County grows the greatest Pinot Noir grapes in the world. Um, why not express that terroir? Why does everything have to be brought down to this microscopic <laughs> level? And so that's, that was the jumping off point for Bastard Tongue, and it has served us incredibly well. <laughs> I think the wines we're making today are significantly better than those first ones, mostly because we said there are no rules to making this wine. They can come from as many vineyards, as many Appalachians as we want. Let's just make the best damn Pinot we possibly can and say, this is what Sonoma County could do with Pinot Noir from this specific vintage and the twenty twenty one which is our eleventh bottling um I'd say we're you know it's we've gone from strength to strength there, and we're really excited about this particular wine in in the glass in front of us Cheers, cheers, yeah, I mean like
0: <laughs> like, like talk about like why what 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 has you so excited about this wine
2: Well, for one thing, it is having this legacy of the wine, having all these prior bottlings from different, from earlier vintages, being able to know what bastard tongue is, the personality of the wine in our head. And when we taste through the barrels, we're like, that's a bastard tongue barrel. Uh, That one's on the fence. Maybe not that one. Remember for 2021, we were tasting through barrels back in February, or maybe even before that. And there was one barrel we tasted, and Beth's like, "Oh, that's a bastard tongue barrel." And I gave her a piece <laughs> of chalk. I was like, "Write it on the head of the barrel," <laughs> and it said,
0: "BT says BT. B-T.
2: And Beth's main name initials Thompson, so Beth Thompson,
0: bastard tongue. Um, yeah, I like. Um, I is- yeah. Okay. I mean, I just my mind went somewhere. I'm like BT, but I'm gonna leave that alone. So um- <laughs> I was like, "Wait a minute! Oh my God! Wait!" How did, that, how did I just put that together? Anyway, so, yeah, so, yeah got it. Okay. <laughs> Clear. <laughs> uh-huh.
2: So we've got, this wine has this fabulous following at this point. Customers are expecting something, but they're also expecting us to deliver something new every year, something exciting. And so mm-hmm. the process of blending this wine up each year, each vintage, is, uh, while it's daunting and it's pretty stressful, it's also one of the most fun times i think it's
1: very rewarding for you well for both of us i mean it's ultimately you're the master but i definitely lend my palate to it and we spend a lot of time going through the blends and trying to figure out the exact you know perfect representation of what we want this wine to be year in and year out we want it to be stamped with this specific style that we've created in the wine but remain true to the vintage and express that vintage's uniqueness. And true to
2: Sonoma County. And true to sure. Sonoma County.
1: yeah,
0: absolutely. I mean, like some of the press you've gotten, I mean, like your 2016 <laughs> Jeb Dunnick said, it's thrilling stuff. <laughs> 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 it's a rock star of a Sonoma County Pinot that delivers the goods, right? Like a hedonistic texture, you know? And then for like, the, uh, the 2018, oh, my God, what did he say? He said, oh, yeah, it's like um, big, ripe, sexy beast of Pinot delivering loads of black, I mean, like, and, I mean, it's true. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm a person who, I, I I don't, I do, okay. I don't understand when people don't like a wine because it's ripe, right? Like, I can appreciate that lean austere quality of wine, but like like it seems to me like <clears> there's <throat> there's 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 a us versus them sometimes in wine, right? Yeah, yeah. Where people go like, well, that's not Pinot Noir. It's you know, it's the alcohol's too high and blah blah blah. But I get I get black tea. I get everything. I get everything. I get every note that you. You, yeah. you would want, I mean, beyond the black raspberry, the black cherry, and, you know, or the strawberry, the cure, but then you get like the black tea and you get the forest floor. So I don't understand why people, you know, do the us versus them thing, but I, I really think what you said, something you said early really kind of hit home. And It was very, and, and you said, you said Sonoma County makes the best Pinot Noir grapes in the world, right? Let me tell you something. If they could blend shit in France, they freaking would. And oftentimes they do. They declassify shit, making a Borgogna. Like some of, those, like sometimes we'll get like some of those guys, those high-end guys, buy their eighty-dollar, 80, $80 Borgogna, and it's more flavorful than their single vineyard shit. Sure. Right? Yeah, you and know. some of
2: those, some of those are quite expensive too. Like Loire does not make a cheap Borgogna.
0: No. <laughs> <laughs> you
2: know, neither does Dujac. I mean, it's no. uh, and that. I'm glad you brought that up because it is these traditions that go back to Europe, generally speaking. Um, And in Pinot Noir, obviously it's going to go back to Burgundy and you have these village level wines, they're village level wines. And they're the easy early drinking ones that are the least expensive and they're built for bistro culture and so on and so forth. And that was sort of what I was bumping up against when we made that first Bastard tongue in 2011. I was like, I don't want the most expensive wine to be a village or a county level applet.
0: She's like, I'm from Texas. Make it big.
2: (laughs) Give me the flavor. You know, going back to the top of this conversation, though, like we're talking about food. We're talking about all these incredibly flavorful, really street foods, right? Yeah. Yep. Yep. And street food and peasant food is known for being hearty and flavorful. Like they don't have time for foam. Um, And, you know, God bless that, that style of that culinary art, but it's something completely different. Um, Totally,
0: totally, totally. And,
2: you know, if I have my choice between doing a 16 course four hour meal at a super swanky restaurant or, you know, spending the same (laughs) amount to fly to Chicago and have a a Mulnati's pizza, it's (laughs) you know, it's, and so what, we love flavor. We love texture. Uh, one of the sort of cliches I've spouted over and over again about the Argo wines is we make wines that are massively impressive.
1: Mm. Now, whether or
2: not the person drinking them likes them or not, that's up to them, but they will certainly be left with an impression. Mm-hmm. There, is, um, there is no doubting when you stick your nose in a glass of our wine there's something in there and it's got a lot going on mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's super important to us. And that's what we like to drink at home. And, um, so that's what we make. And we love the joy of it. We love, um, how fun they are. We love how flavorful they are. And recently we, uh, you know who Lisa Perotti Brown is MJ? Of course. M- yes. M-W- so everyone knows
0: now the, yeah, of course. of course. She
2: did, um, she did a retrospective tasting of the bastard tongue, which we were we were hoping to do with someone when we bottled the twenty twenty, which was the tenth uh, anniversary of the wine. Mm-hmm. And our paths and her paths happened to cross in a coffee shop in St Helena one afternoon after pouring um, some wines for her with Kimberly Jones earlier that week, and she said, "I would love to do a feature on you guys." We were like let's do it. And she's like, do you have any wines that you could pour a vertical of? And we were like, oh, do we? (laughs) And it was just this chance situation. And so we got to pour the 2011 through the 2021 Bastard Tongues for. And man, it was, was, it was was a fun experience experience and very proud of the way every single wine showed, including the 2011, which was regarded as a difficult vintage, but that wine has held up incredibly well. And um, any, any ideas out there that Pinot Noirs over 15% alcohol can age. I uh,
1: come on down. It has, been pro-
2: <laughs> 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 it has been proven to us to the contrary. That, that is not true.
0: <laughs> yeah. And especially, I mean, I mean, you did it with Lisa. I mean, I, I'm, I know, you know, I read some of Jeb scores and, and there's people I always tell people just know the critics palette. Yeah. I also think, I think, I think, and I think that, um, I think a lot of the critics, most of the critics are fair, most of them, you know. Um, but then there are, you know, but like for to get that type of praise that you got, you guys put, you know, from Lisa, who tends to, you know, I would say is not that right, you know, like, you know, like, uh, and I've, you know, this whole thing about just even high alcohol wines. like you said, I mean, it's particularly Pinot. I think it's, I think it's fascinating. I think I had, uh, last year I had my last bottle, of, like your 2016, just Sonoma Mountain Pinot. And it was singing, you know, like, fuck, wish I had more of that one. Um, it's a great wine. Yeah. I mean, but like, for me, I think if, what I think, and I'm not a winemaker, I'm not a chemical engineer, but to have more fruit up front means you're going to have more fruit as the wine ages. It's, and that's just kind of like, it's just kind of like simple. That's like anecdotally, simple. it makes sense. Yeah, right? and exactly. <laughs> anecdotally, yeah, exactly. Right. Like there's something about that, that makes sense. Right. It, for me, it's like, if you're, if you think about wine aging and you think about as wine ages, right. typically the, the secondary and tertiary flavors come forward when you want to have more fruit to kind of kind of counterbalance that, that I don't know. Bought <laughs> me crazy. Anecdotally, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just spitballing here. Um, but uh, with this 2021 and the retrospective, I know you guys you did a really nice social media campaign about it. What was just so exciting about 2021 for you guys?
1: Oh my god, incredible vintage! I mean, yeah. seeing this fruit come into the winery for the Bastard Tongue, or what ended up going into the Bastard Tongue, it was like the most perfect berries. I, I think. I've ever seen, I mean, it was just a really beautiful thing. You can speak more to that than I could. Yeah,
2: it was a great growing season. It it followed 2020, which, you know, yeah, it was a kick in the shins. Um, But uh, yeah, 2021 was this return to form in that, you know, California is generally regarded as having like this perfect growing Mm -hmm. season, which as the deeper we've gotten into this the less true we found that to be and the other <laughs> challenges and 2021 did offer its its challenges which we can talk another time about that but ultimately the wines made it into barrel um we came back to them in the new year in 2022 and started you know smelling barrels and tasting and sort of doing like the rudimentary what does this vintage have to offer us uh tastings out of barrel and we were like Hot damn, this stuff is really good. A <laughs> um, lot of color, a lot of intensity. The wines have incredible length to them, which I'm big on finishes. I think a wine really has to linger on the palate for me to consider it super top notch. And I'd say this wine absolutely fits that bill. And so uh,
1: Lisa's tasting note was finishing long, long, long. Yeah. Super- <laughs> long long yes that's what we're
2: going for yeah and then 2021 also is on the pinot noir front um absolutely loved the bastard tongue but it was also our first year working with the kanzler vineyard out in russian river i was gonna yeah kanzler and you know going back to the early days when i first started getting into wine costa brown's kanzler vineyard was like that was the cult pinot noir of cult pinot noirs and um I remember the first time I tasted one, it was at a dinner at Bistro Janti in Biontville and just being blown away. It was like tasting, I think it was the 03 or the 04. And this was, you know, 15 years ago or so, just being like, wow, the amount of flavor that that has is just incredible. And being able to taste subsequent vintages and then getting an opportunity, getting the phone call from Alex Kanzler saying, um, Costa Brown is no longer going to be making a Kanzler. We their fruits up for grabs. We would love it if you guys would work with our fruit. Like, absolutely. <laughs> and so we jumped at that opportunity. Um, a little bit of Kanzler made it into the 2021 Bastard Tongue. Yeah, I figured, I figured it was just a touch. Um... Yeah, but so, you know, 2021 Pinot Noir between the Bastard Tongue, the Kanzler, um, the phoenix rising from the ashes of 2020 it just so much excitement and when the wines hand out and you know we put the blends together and we were just like yes these wines are awesome yeah yeah so it's been exciting and we also wait a really long time to release the bastard tongue okay we released it a week ago today yeah one which is just short of two years yeah most people are bottling up their Pinots at 10, 11 months and releasing them probably in January. So at mm-hmm. like 14-month mark, we push pretty deep into the uh
1: Yeah, we, we want this cycle. to land on people's doorsteps. And, hey, you want to open a bottle now? Go for it. You want to open three bottles now? Go for it. There's another three behind it that are going to taste just as good in five five months, five years. I mean, that's kind of... yeah. We, we put that work in on the front end, I think, so that people it's ready to drink when they get it, but yeah, the ageability factor is there.
0: Definitely. Yeah. And it's been proven. That's really cool. Really. So, so freaking cool. So, um, guys, wow. We've been talking for almost, uh, we're talking over 80 <laughs> minutes, which we is got fine. Stuff. <laughs> I know. Um, a couple of things before I let you go, um, quick, uh, game I play on the podcast, FMK, Fuck, Marry, Kill. <laughs> I'm going to give each of you three grapes. You get to fuck one, you marry one, and one you just can't. It's done. Can't. This is going to be awesome. I'm excited. Yeah. This is
2: an old like Howard Stern bit, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I
0: don't know. I, I, it might be. I got this from Brooke Sobel, who uh, is a psalm and then worked for uh, Gary's for a while. Now she's with uh, P.E. out in Sonoma, mm-hmm. but but Brooke, Brooke was a guest like way back when, like fifty episodes ago, and she's like, "You should play this game." Um, and so I, I've adopted it since Hospice to Rome last year, uh, or two years ago now. Wow, two years. Wow. all right. So um, we're gonna do Justin first. Good. Um, Good. Um, see, and you know, normally I do ladies first, but see, I, I, I I'm. The I first. know. But Please. I'm, yeah. So well, I'm Justin might even be easier. So FMK. Cabernet Sauvignon, Syrah, Pinot Noir. Ooh! Is this as a wine drinker, wine maker? I would say as a drinker. As a drinker. Yeah. Well, I'll, that's so
1: tough for you. I'll yeah.
2: this, I'll I don't Syrah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna marry the Pinot Noir, which just leaves the Cabernet as the odd man out.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's fair oh. enough. Fair enough. And then, um,
2: what for are my you, Beth,
0: Yeah, I'm going to give you, uh, give her the same ones. Yeah, well- you know I am actually, I'm going to give you the same ones. So I was going to do like, but like, you know, like you do make Chardonnay, but like, I, I you know, we didn't get into, we'll get into this week when we hang out, but like, we didn't get into like, do you guys drink Riesling, Albarino? Did you like, you know, And you know, what? So same thing.
1: Oh, gosh. Can we turn the K for kill into like,
0: no. Uh, <laughs> no. No.
1: No. I want to keep all three. No. Nope, no.
0: Nope, no. Nope. I mean, okay. If you want, if you don't want to kill it, it's still kicked to the curb. You ain't getting to drink that shit no more. So whatever.
1: <laughs> oh. Okay. I I would say for me the F. I'm a lady. I'm not gonna say it. I would. It's it's cab. Yeah, I see that. Oh,
0: she's, she, she, she's a little bit starstruck shall I say oh,
1: oh. Yeah.
0: Okay.
1: I, I, I'd I, say yep. that's my like yep. that's my guilty pleasure for yep. sure I'm going to say I mean as, far as, do it, as girl. far as it's Pino for marrying I would marry Pino I would okay. marry Pino I would marry it today I would marry it tomorrow I would, <laughs> yeah <laughs> I mean especially if we're talking about our Pino sorry yeah. Yeah.
0: but yeah, yeah.
1: But that does not make me want to kill Syrah. That it's
0: is dead. dead. It's done. It's a wrap. <laughs> it's over.
1: I don't know if I could survive without it like forever. Maybe like side, sideline it for a little bit and then like, you know, I don't know. I don't
0: know. Maybe, maybe or I'll revise
1: this. This. this is yeah. tough.
0: Yeah. It, it's I'm not, listen. not being listening. for the rest of my I life. I do. No I did this at okay. Hospice okay. de Rhone and it's Grenache, Shiraz, Movedra to people who make Rhone wines. I mean, I don't, this is not supposed to be easy. It's not <laughs> like it's not like white Zinfandel, <laughs> Sauvignon right. Blanc, no,
1: okay. yeah, no. Yeah. and
0: Tempranillo. No, it's not easy. Um, and um, so what do you, what do you, what do you guys most excited about for the future? It's my last question
1: for you. Uh, like, I think for me, near term is like. Know, this has been a big year for us. I've had my career in the wine business for the last decade and I've been working for other wineries and we took a big leap of faith this year for me to quit my job and for me to help Justin run Argo full time. So I think for the near term is like all the marketing and like getting our name out there opportunities that we're going to try to get involved with because like we have the goods. It's just, a lot of people don't know anything about us because we're so small. And so that part is really exciting to me um, because when people discover us for the first time, it's, it's such a magical and cool experience. I love seeing the look on people's faces when they try our wines. Um, We opened a tasting room this year at the winery and like seeing, you know, seeing people and hosting them at our own tasting room is like awesome. So I'm looking forward to expanding that. I'm really excited to put together some cool tasting programs that are like experiences unlike what anyone else is doing. And I've got a lot of things kind of going there. That's my near term, my long term. I love talking about goals. It's like one of my favorite things to talk about. (laughs) uh, We have two gorgeous children. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that they're just gorgeous Um, and amazing. And our son, William, who's six, he might change his mind at some point and that would be a okay by me. He can do whatever he wants with his life, but he really wants to be a winemaker like dad someday. And so my, my ultimate long-term goal would be that we could be a true like first generation turned second generation winery, turn this into a family business for real and pass it on to them someday. So, I mean, what could be better than that? That would be (sighs) a a girl growing up in a small town. East Texas could never even imagine that being a possibility. So your turn wow i don't even know if should let justin talk
0: that was so yeah. good why try to follow that up um, let,
2: let looking me, forward to harvest <laughs>
0: <laughs> Yeah, exactly.
2: it'll start eventually i promise yeah. <laughs> very late year for us out here
0: I yeah think. i heard the raisins
2: yeah yeah, yeah but yeah. really quickly to expand a little bit on what beth said um there just aren't that many uh wineries in Sonoma and Napa anymore like us, with yeah. just this first generation, no connections uh, to the industry through anything, really. Um, we bootstrapped this and we've been fighting the good fight for, you know, it's, is it 15 years? Yeah. yeah. 15 years now, which is just like crazy mm-hmm. and really proud of everything we've done. And um, it makes me a little sad that there aren't like guys coming up behind me in Sonoma mm-hmm, that are mm-hmm. just, you know, throwing a couple thousand dollars at two barrels of wine and starting a label like I did. Whereas in 2007, when I did that, I that. came up with a handful of folks like that. And I had lunch with a friend of mine today, Matt Duffy of Von Duffy Winery. And he and I were talking like we're the last two standing. Um, right. well, and does, yeah. You know, it's, it's just Sonoma and Napa have priced out. That opportunity, Mm -hmm. you know, now you see it a lot more in like Paso and maybe Walla Walla. Walla Walla. Yeah. Yeah. And that's awesome. And if I were to start a winery today, that's definitely where I would go. Um, But yeah, I'm really proud of what we've done. And yeah, this whole idea of our son potentially someday and daughter inheriting the winery would be awesome. Um, But yeah, I'm just really proud of where we stand today, what we've done and that we're still standing and thriving and, on to the next one, up, you know, onwards and upwards. And so, you know. Amazing. Happy, happy to be here and chatting with you and talking to your audience about it. And yeah, it's really thrilling, you. MJ, it really is.
0: No, thank you guys so much. Um, Beth, Justin, tell everybody how they can be a part of what you're doing at Argo, how they can find you, get on the mailing list, what do they need to do?
1: Yeah, so we are not a very, you know, traditional winery for the sense that we like have a wine club uh, we do offer a subscription service for a few of our wines, but for the most part, they're allocation based. Um, so we do several releases throughout the year. Every year, one of the releases that people look forward to the most is of course, the BT Boom. and that's going on right now. So, um, we're halfway through the release. Um, something cool we do with our allocations, not only is it your chance to get, the quantity of wine you want before it sells out. It's also your chance to get it at um, a discount. So we call it a discount. It's we, we do a $75 per bottle release price, whereas our standard retail price for this wine is $85. So um, that price is kind of what lives on our website at any other time of the year when it's available. But during the release window, which is right now, you order it and you get it for the price of $75, which is a screaming deal for a 97-point pinot of this Magnitude. Um, so yeah, you just get on the mailing list by going to argowines.com. We recently updated our website. Uh, we spent months working on that we're super excited about how it turned out. And uh, you'll read all about our story there. And you can, once you join the mailing list, you're gonna get all kinds of updates as far as like when we're doing an event, um, come to the tasting room and taste with us. We invite any and all um, on our mailing list to come. And those releases come to you every, pretty much every two months. Um, we have a new wine coming out. Our Syrah always in June. Our Pinot Bastard tongue always in August, and then our Cabernet is always in the fall, so can't miss
0: it. Awesome! Um, <clears throat> thank you so much for being here. This was a lot of fun.
1: Thanks for having us. Oh,
0: my too. pleasure. And for all the listeners out there, make sure you check out the show notes. That's where I will uh, list, uh, you know, the wines we drank. Even though we, like, said they probably don't have a lot of that 2018 sepatico <laughs> Ranch, but definitely the information on the the, the 20. 21 bastard tongue that we had uh links their websites their instagram um so uh here's to all my philosophers my deep thinkers and all you wine drinkers your boy mj saying peace thank you so much for listening i hope you learned something you had some fun while you were here please subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to And if you want to be an insider and get special content, make sure you go over to blackwineguy.com and get on our email list.